Give Me Liberty is brought to you by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. America faces a crisis. Too many Americans don't know why they should love their own country. Ashbrook's mission is to change that. Since President Reagan inaugurated the Ashbrook Center in 1983, its mission has been to strengthen constitutional self-government, educating students, teachers, and citizens in America's history and founding principles. Ashbrook just released an essential resource for rediscovering the principles and history of our country called The American Idea. The volume presents the American story through a few key primary documents and invites the reader into a rich conversation across time about the central idea that defines America. The American Idea is available as a free digital download and for purchase. Visit ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today. That's ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today. My name is Richard Brookheiser, and welcome to Give Me Liberty, the making of American exceptionalism, the podcast about liberty, America's exceptional idea. Before we were even a country, Americans were thinking about liberty, working for it, fighting for it. We've been doing it for 400 years. Today, episode 12, Franklin Roosevelt declares us the great arsenal of democracy. And with me is Luke Thompson, political consultant and history buff. If there's something in electoral history Luke doesn't know, you don't have to know it either. Luke. Well, so we, we turn to a new subject in a couple of respects. Uh, we've talked already about the relationship between America as a particular place with universal ideals and the way that interacts with places abroad. That's been a recurring theme in, uh, in this series of podcasts. But the subject today, the Arsenal of Democracy Fireside Chat, um, is an explicit connection of the project of liberty to a project of international militarism. Those two things can never sit easily together. And yet in this document, uh, they perhaps come into a greater natural alignment than they otherwise would, which is none, which is not to diminish the rhetorical and sort of intellectual challenge of bringing them together. Second, um, it's important to know that this, unlike everything else we've talked about so far, uh, is heard simultaneously across the country. This is the first broadcast of a live chat or speech uh, that we've discussed. Everything else, many of them had large audiences. Some of them had vast audiences, but they were reading audiences. Some, many people heard the Cross of Gold speech oh, recited again and again and again, for instance. But there were only so many people who could pack into that Chicago convention hall. Additionally, while this is a live speech, it is a live speech that people encounter the way they would generally encounter political rhetoric written down in their homes. This is not a, a speech that people go and gather with their fellow citizens to hear, which means that they're not taking cues from the audience. They're taking cues directly from the speaker as they would reading a document. And yet, unlike a written document, which anyone who's written something for public articulation will know that you can write it down and sort of read it to yourself aloud and guess how it's going to sound to other people. Radio is 
especially done, you know, more or less live in its its nascency, uh, is not something where you can say it, play it, and infer how it's going to play. Um, there's there's a there's an uncertainty around it. So on the one hand, you have the certainty of everyone hearing the same thing at the same time. The uncertainty of them hearing it as individuals in their own homes or as family units rather than in community settings where they can take cues from each other or the the game can be sort of rigged by packing the rafters with your loyalists. Um, and you also, of course, have mass technology intersecting with mass democracy um, really explicitly for the purpose of communication for the first time. All of that in the service of arming a historically um, – perfectly happy to be a violent country, the United States, but not one that has armed itself with a great deal of enthusiasm to go abroad with the exception of its imperial conquests in uh, the Caribbean and the former Spanish holdings. And the violent holdings. to ourselves and to our neighbors. Yes. Yes, exactly. Very violent to our neighbors, very violent to ourselves, uh, generally not violent to the Europeans except for the sort of opportunistic lark of 1917, which I don't want to diminish the violence of that, but it was out of character. Uh, for Americans. And so the arsenal of democracy speech is reorienting the United States towards being an international power, perhaps even a superpower. And so there's a there is a self-explanation that's being undertaken for Americans to say you are not necessarily as you have always been nor as you understand yourself today. How did we get to radio fireside chats from the president talking about the needfulness of arming the nation in the service of liberty. Well, in a way, it was a surprise. It was unexpected. Franklin Roosevelt, of course, is is the one who gives the speech uh, shortly after he's been elected to his third term, unprecedented in American political history. Uh, his first two elections had nothing to do with foreign affairs. He, he's elected in 1932 and re-elected in 36 to deal with an economic crisis, to deal with the Great Depression. And his, his first eight years are consumed with that. It's the New Deal. It's New Deal programs. It's how do we get them through? We do get them through Congress. Can we get them through the Supreme Court? Do any of them work? Which ones work? Which ones don't? Which ones do we have to throw over the side, try something else? That was what Roosevelt ran on. That was what he was elected to accomplish. And yet at the same time, the world in Europe and in Asia is changing. Uh, Hitler uh, leads Germany uh, in 1933. Uh, the year that uh, Roosevelt is first inaugurated. Mussolini has been leading Italy for a number of years. And the Japanese military in the, in the mid-30s finally takes control of the Japanese state and pursues uh, an aggressive policy in first in northern China and then in all of China they can get to. And Franklin Roosevelt is very mindful of this. He's He... You mentioned our, our uh, episode in World War I. He was very much a part of that. He was in uh, the Navy Department under Woodrow Wilson. Uh, he yearned for a fleet of 48 battleships, one named after every state. That's a very uh, sweeping ideal. Uh, he was a lifelong student of the Navy. He, he loved 
private sailboats, but he also loved Navy ships. His knowledge of the specs and the stats of, of our naval ships was awesome. People were always amazed by his, his detailed absorption of all of that. And he had a lifelong interest in the world. I, I don't think it's frivolous to say that he was a lifelong stamp collector. I mean that's, that's a childish way to approach the world in history but, but it is. You know, you're, you're, you're collecting these little bits of paper which are from other countries and are decorated with other sovereigns and other slogans and you're, you're experiencing the world that way and that was a lifelong hobby of his. So he is seeing what's going on in the world and he is mindful that America is both reluctant to re-engage after our experience in World War I and is unsuited to doing so. Uh, our, our army, which is historically small, is quite small in the 30s. Uh, Douglas MacArthur, uh, who's a senior general in the army, says – complains that the whole army would fit in Yankee Stadium. Uh, our navy is a different matter. Our navy is one of the great navies in the world but uh, you know the army uh, less so. The Air Force is a part of the army at that time. It too is small and struggling and the navy has been self-limited by treaties that, that we ourselves have pushed for to reduce naval armaments in the world after World War one, agreements that we signed with Britain and Japan. So uh, this is how Roosevelt gets elected. This is the world that he's looking at and this is the resources that he's initially presented with. And he has to make the first and the third suit the second. And he's doing this all in December of 1940. So it's it's or that's when the speech will be delivered. So this is before Pearl Harbor. I think it's important oh, yes. for people to understand. It's it's easy to conflate everything. To conflate everything, yeah, and and miss the timing. The timing really does break down. I mean, it's important. He's been president now for quite a while, and he's just won re-election, right? So he's he's sort of politically in his at his apex here, um, and yet also. Uh, he does not have the, urge, the, the urgent political moment to explicitly justify, you know, like an like an attack on the homeland, to right? Yeah, to right. explicitly justify a massive program. Yes, foreign policy had come up in the nineteen forty election. Is the third race that he wins against Wendell Willkie, and both of those men were internationalists and aware of the world scene, but both of them said, "Oh, we're not going to take America into war." You know, they they both made that pledge, knowing that it would have been politically suicidal for either of them to have said anything different. And lurking in the background to all of this is Charles Lindbergh, right? And and an, an isolationist slash Germanophilic movement um, of uh, of of undesirable elements that has reach in both the Republican and Democratic parties, as well as you know Father Coughlin on the radio in Detroit, who is praising Mussolini, praising some of the the uh, the modern autocrats of, of Europe as uh, having solved problems of class conflict for interest for, for instance. Uh, so it's not as and, and that goes straight to a big democratic base of voters. So there are elements of the Republican Party that almost successfully win in 1940. Wilkie, of course, as an internationalist, wins that, carries the day. It's a you know saves the party from becoming Lindberghite. But there are probably even more isolationists in the Democratic coalition at this point. 
Right. Uh, and, and you know, some of their uh, ethnic uh, uh, voting blocks. Uh, Irish Americans are, are certainly not going to be willing to pull Britain's chestnuts from the fire mm -hmm. for obvious historical reasons. And Italian Americans, Mussolini is running Italy and not, not all of them. Certainly there are many Italian Americans who are opposed to him. But there, there are others who think, well, look, yeah, he, he's doing a good job. He's making our homeland respectable again. So – and Roosevelt is very mindful of, of this and we see him you know, addressing that uh, in, in the fireside chat that he gives. It, does he still have – is he still mindful of the sort of Bryanite German voter or had the experience of World War I sort of tamped down German ethnic identity enough that they were – because you have the German-American Bund running around. Yes, you, you have that. I think you – know, and that's very obnoxious. Uh, I, I think it's localized and, and minority. Mm -hmm. uh, the German-American ethnic group is a very large one. Its very diversity has made it um, unrallyable. You know, the, the Germans came over. There were Protestants. There were Catholics. There were Jews. There were farmers. There were artisans. You know, there was there was like this whole scale of people, and they, you know, they couldn't mobilize as one sort of uh, uh, voting block. And then the experience of World War One had been very punishing. I mean, people, you know, couldn't own dachshunds, and they stopped playing Beethoven, and and all this kind of stuff. And I think German Americans had learned to keep their heads down. So. Shifting then, given the audience, let's talk about the, the audio, what he uses to reach them. What, what goes into a fireside chat? This is, of course, not his first fireside chat. It's, right. It's, it's number 16. 16. Number He's 16. done quite a few of these. Mm -hmm. They've got a routine down. They've, they've got a sort of system. What is, the, what is the production value, so to speak, underpinning one of these things? Well, he's got um, two, two of his favorite speechwriters. There's a man named Sam Rosenman who's a, a New York – politician and there's uh, a, a, a playwright, uh, Broadway, Broadway playwright uh, who also helps him out and he goes over drafts with the two of them uh, consuming martinis because that's uh, – As that's, one should. As one should and as he certainly does. Uh, he, he's very explicit on certain details. He wants paper that won't rustle. You know, so he wants limp paper that's not going to make scratchy sounds uh, over the mic. Uh, he doesn't like commas. He wants dashes in the text that he reads because those are easier to see and better visual cues. Uh, he also has a good radio voice. Um, it's a tenor voice. Uh, it's got an accent, uh, the sort of East Coast upper class. It's it's part pseudo-Brit and it's part old New England and it drops terminal R's and it would probably strike us today as a little, you know, odd and phony. But then I think it was, you know, something that that people nodded to in a sort of aspiring way. Well, yeah, this this is how the the toffs speak and and here's one who's on our side. So. Let him drop his R's. And early Hollywood, I think, did a lot to familiarize Americans Th with. That's with right. That. Yes, yes. It was also an. It also became an actor's accent. Right. So it was sort of like you know, rich people on the East Coast and actors talk that way. Yeah, the the presidential candidate Marianne Williamson sounds a bit like this today, but more Mid Atlantic. But yeah, something a bit of that odd kind of quasi affected, quasi mm -hmm. sort of elite accent. So. How many people are listening to these when they tune in? 
Well, there are 500 stations that are carrying it. Uh, that strikes me as a lot. That's a, that's a big number. Uh, he has you know a number of mics lined up on his desk. The, the audience in the room is very small. Uh, it was it was kind of an interesting mix. There are you know some of his inner circle. There's Clark Gable and Carol Lombard, and there's his mother. <laughs> so these are the people that he's uh, physically addressing. But but those microphones are are sending it out over 500 radio stations. And what is it? What is the message that he tries to convey? How does he persuade Americans that out, coming out of the Great Depression, now is the time to arm for war that has not yet been provoked and that he must also explicitly declaim an interest in engaging it? That's right. We've got to arm although we ourselves are, are not going to fight, he, he hopes and he says. Well, he, he starts off by explaining that the world has shrunk. Uh, he says that the oceans that had once protected us are, are smaller than they were in the days of clipper ships. Uh, he explains that South America is vulnerable. Uh, he points out that the, the western tip of Africa, which is Senegal, which is a colony of Vichy France, France has already fallen to German arms. And the rump French state, which is known as Vichy, is – uh, de facto an ally now of Nazi Germany and they are the ones in control of Senegal. And he points out that that is closer to Brazil than Washington, D.C. is to Denver. So he's trying to make the argument that the Atlantic isn't, isn't that big. There are parts of it that are, that are rather small. He's also making an ideological argument that if, if uh, the Germans were able to get established in South American countries, they could use those as bases for a propaganda and for attack on other ones, and you know this is this is not a bogeyman. This is not an unrealistic uh, fear. Uh, we 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 forget the penetration that uh, fascism had around the world beyond Europe, and particularly in Latin America. Uh, you know, by the time Hitler is is almost defeated and dying, virtually every country in the world declares war on him. But some of those Latin American countries declared. Pretty damn late and that's because they had – you know, I'm thinking of Perón in Argentina. They had a lot of sympathy with fascism both as to goals and methods. So they were you know, likely allies, uh, perhaps uh, pawns. So he's, he's making that case. He addresses the, the problem of, of Ireland and Italy. Uh, he says that you know, Germany has taken uh, – uh, the Low Countries, it has taken France, it has taken Norway, it's attacking England. If it were to succeed in, in conquering England, would Ireland be left as an island of freedom in Western Europe? And you know, to ask the question that way is to answer it. Unimaginable that it would. Uh, he addresses Italian Americans by saying, well, Italy is now uh, the ally of, of Hitler but they may find that that's uh, a very unpleasant embrace is how he puts it. So he's, he's trying to cover his bases with those two democratic groups. And then the phrase that he uses and as is so often the case, when, when there's a golden phrase, there's, there's quarrels over the authorship of it. Uh, the phrase, he says that America must be the great arsenal of democracy. And uh, you know, someone in his inner circle said this French businessman, Jean Monnet, who was living in the United States at the time, he came up with it. 
And someone else said, uh, oh, no, no. Um, one of Roosevelt's advi – another advisor read it in a newspaper and he passed it on to FDR. And I don't think anyone has, has figured out among those stories. But anyway, that's what uh, Roosevelt uses as kind of the centerpiece of this fireside chat. He is saying that we must rearm and we must make our armaments available to Britain. Britain is fighting our fight. They are fighting countries which by their nature are enemies of us and enemies of our way of life and our system. This isn't just a battle of superpowers. It's an ideological, it's an intellectual, it's a moral struggle. Uh, he says that the means of dictatorship, they're not accidental. They, they, they are brutal because they are in love with brutality. The, you know, the means are part of the message. That's part of the point. And that this is being aimed uh, now at Britain, also being aimed across the Pacific at China. But we can't imagine uh, that we would escape if it were to triumph, particularly in Britain. And that's the case. That's the case he's he's trying to make in this uh, radio address. There's also an explicit religious appeal in the middle of it, saying that these these forces are the enemies of religion. They're godless. Yes, yeah. they they destroy religion. Uh, is that an effort to? use religion as a kind of abstract concept more or less uh, as a means to bridge some of the persistent sectarianism in the United States um, or is it a – is it simply – or does he speak to some deeper commitment to religious liberty that FDR held? Well, I think a little bit of both. Uh, Roosevelt himself seems to have been a, a customary Christian. Uh, I don't – I don't get from him the kind of passion or interest that Lincoln developed certainly during the Civil War. But uh, he's certainly very alive to the opposite of Christianity. I mean he, he sees what that is. He senses what that is and he senses the opposition. And that's why he, that's why he makes um, that argument that, that you mentioned, that this is not only – not only is it brutal, not only is it authoritarian, it is – anti-Christian. It is, it is anti-religious as we practice it here in the United States. Unlike some of the documents that we've talked about in this series, which put down markers and ideas that get realized later as material facts, this has a, a very, very important material consequence out of the gate. It's an articulation of a political program that Churchill has the means to put into place provided the public opinion will support it. Well, the Roosevelt will put into place sorry, yeah, for, Churchill's, sorry, for the yeah. benefit of yeah. Churchill. Yes, well, yeah, we, should, we should say that, that before he gives this fireside chat, he has gotten a desperate communication from Churchill saying, you know, look, the air war is going pretty good but the uh, war in the Atlantic is disastrous. Uh, German U-boats are sinking our ships at a rate that we can only hold out for so long. We must have your help. Uh, we, we, we need your help in materiel. Uh, we also need your help in helping to, to, to break this blockade. And, and Roosevelt is able to put this into place. So with the Lend-Lease Act and other things. So is the fireside chat itself merely a kind of covering for as, – as a document, the arsenal of democracy, is it important because it secured the politics around getting Lend-Lease and other forms of military support for Britain in place uh, or is it 
covering is it merely an articulation of something that we were doing anyway? And what's its what's its legacy? What is the what is created by the arsenal of democracy? It helps to orient American opinion towards the task that it must perform. Uh, Americans are have have been watching the air war in Britain, or they've been hearing about it through radio broadcasts, and they see it in the newspapers, and they see the destruction of London. And you know that creates uh, a lot of sympathy, but it didn't have to create sympathy. It could also create, you know, apprehension. It's like, ah, uh, you know, you could say, and you could certainly say, if public opinion was being directed in that direction, you could say, well, this is a terrible thing. We better stay out of that. You know, we don't want to see any of that here. Better let them deal with it. And Roosevelt is saying, no, this is not just Britain's problem. This is also our problem. There must be no Nazis in Britain. And this is the, uh, you know, I see it as the extension of James Monroe saying, no kings in this hemisphere. Roosevelt's now expanding that an important bit. He's saying, no fascism, no Nazism in Britain. If that would happen, that would be very bad for us. What ultimately how, – how ultimately does the speech get viewed after December 7th, 1941? Is it, is it one among a series of fireside chats beforehand that then stands out as exceptional because of its prescience or when it was delivered, was it noticed as a distinctive uh, speech in a series? I think that phrase, great arsenal of democracy, was you know, meant to be noticed and was noticed and Roosevelt then – will later give a speech, The Four Freedoms, a much more expansive vision of what the world – what he would like the world to be like. Uh, and then, of course, the wire is finally tripped not by Germany but, but by Japan. Uh, and even though it's Pearl Harbor that tumbles us into World War II, the Roosevelt administration still maintains the policy that the primary enemy is Germany. They are the one we have to destroy first even as we fight the Japanese and then we'll mop them up later. And that's the orientation that we pursue. Isolationism has been much in, in vogue in recent years. It's always been in vogue in the United States. But there's a, there's a current of people who criticize what, what they call forever wars. And I don't think anyone could look at American policy in Iraq and Afghanistan and say this is an unmitigated success, right? This is mm -hmm. a – there's – there are no um, – I don't think anyone sees those as effective. So it's an understanding – it's an understandable skepticism. Prior to Roosevelt's presidency, that attitude had been the prevalent attitude mm -hmm. that, that foreign entanglements were bad, that the Mexican War, however much it had benefited the United States in terms of territory, had probably been a crime, uh, getting pulled into the Philippines and the Spanish holdings while again useful from an economic standpoint were not exactly seen as – great moral victories for the cause of liberty or republicanism on the part of the United States. Have minds already changed because of the war in Europe or has this ambivalence created a condition where Roosevelt's engagement in the rhetoric of America's stakes in the rest of the world move the public mind? It, it, to put it this way, we will always deal with parts of the country who are eager for war parts of the country who are far too reluctant to go to war. The matter of statesmanship lies somewhere in between, not mm -hmm. chasing every shiny militaristic object right. that presents itself but similarly not putting one's head in the sand and, and denying the obvious. 
where does the arsenal of democracy speech sit on that continuum as a matter of bringing Americans to awareness of the challenge facing them? He says, you know, we've never been th more threatened than we mm -hmm. are today. Mm -hmm. This is a country that was in a civil war. You know, it's it's. Well, yeah, we were threatening each other. The threat for, was from within. As Lincoln said, we can never be conquered, but but we could destroy ourselves from within. I mean, Lincoln said that in 1854. Uh, look, w would the speech have worked if it was not aimed at Hitler? You know, if the threat was less aggressive, if the threat was less attractive, or if it was just Japan, for instance. Well, you know, we've always been interested in the in the Pacific, but. You know, let's let's give Nazism its due. due. There, there were elements of it that attracted people for mostly horrible reasons but also some, well, you know, it seemed cool. It was efficient. You know, it's dynamic. It's the wave of the future. I think Lindbergh mm -hmm. himself felt that. And OK, and, and you can have two attitudes towards that even if you see it in its full awfulness. You could say, well, all right, let's hunker down. And Roosevelt is saying, no, we can't say that. If Britain goes down, hunkering down will be a virtually unsustainable option for us. We have to keep them up and running and free. Our own liberty is bound with theirs. Give Me Liberty is brought to you by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. America faces a crisis. Too many Americans don't know why they should love their own country. Ashbrook's mission is to change that. Since President Reagan inaugurated the Ashbrook Center in 1983, its mission has been to strengthen constitutional self-government, educating students, teachers, and citizens in America's history and founding principles. Ashbrook just released an essential resource for rediscovering the principles and history of our country called The American Idea. The volume presents the American story through a few key primary documents and invites the reader into a rich conversation across time about the central idea that defines America. The American Idea is available as a free digital download and for purchase. Visit ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today. That's ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today.